Thanks, Addison. Well, good morning to you. All right? Happy Bridge Weekend. Anybody run the bridge? Oh, man. We got a good, it's like I said, running is good for fleeing, and that's about it. That's about all good is running for, going over a bridge and coming back and driving home. You could have stayed home and run. You ran over a bridge. All right. Hey. Uh, good morning. Well, if you're new, welcome to Citadel Square uh, with that. Uh, why did I come to this church? He's making fun of the ridge run. Uh, uh, go ahead and grab a Bible if you've got it. Uh, turn with me to Revelation chapter 20. If you don't have a Bible, uh, you can go ahead and grab that. Uh, and there should be one in the pew rack in front of you, a black one. Go ahead and grab it. Turn all the way to the right in the very last book of your Bible, Revelation Chapter 20 is where we're going to be here today. We're just going to look at the first 10 verses. Uh, boy, if you thought, if you've been with us through the course of uh, the book of Revelation, you probably remember Revelation 11 with the two witnesses in Jerusalem, uh, fire from their mouths drop uh, into the city, killing the opponents and adversaries of those two prophets of God. And boy, if you thought that was a tough text, we're coming to probably one of the most uh, variously interpreted passages uh, of the entire book here today in Revelation chapter 20. Uh, the heading in your Bible is the thousand years. That is interpreted uh, with a term that is called the millennium, uh, which is what we're going to look at here today, the millennial period of Revelation 20 verses 1 through 10. Uh, this is one of those texts that requires you to be a good theologian. It may be a relatively clean part of your Bible where you don't have a lot of notes on Revelation chapter 20, and you get to it and you go, what in the world is this here for? Uh, why is this section, these 10 verses, seemingly in between the conquering of Christ and the judgment day, uh, where you have the great white throne that happens, what we'll look at next week, or right in between Armageddon, where Christ comes back, we looked at that last week, and Revelation chapter 21, where there's the judgment of all people, you have this period. This strange a thousand years, and it's a, it, it's a period of time where you've got to kind of take major biblical themes and bring them into an interpretation of this section of your Bible. So as such, uh, good theology, broadly speaking, has to be comprehensive, essentially. It has to take into account every chapter and verse of the Bible for you to make a good interpretation of a text. This is why so many people will quote a Bible verse out of context and declare what it means in their context without backing it into the context in which the biblical writer is writing, the audience to which the biblical writer is writing, the, testimo the testament in which he writes, and the course of all of salvation history that pulls together book one, Genesis, and book 66, Revelation. That's the way you do theology. The good theology is hard because it makes you work. You aren't allowed to open your Bible and go, well, here's a verse. For you've been my refuge, a strong tower against it. That's not bad. You could use that one. Uh, there's other better ones. You know what I mean? Uh, that's not the way you do theology. You've got to put in the work. And Revelation 20 is one of those passages where you have to put in the work. This passage is kind of interpreted about three different big ways. And they've been popular ways throughout church history for the last 2,000 years. So are we going to solve it in 40 minutes? Maybe. We might. I mean, I don't know if I'm that good. I mean, I'm not a Puritan. 
But this text has been interpreted in kind of three big ways. Here are kind of the ideas that come to the fore in a text like this. You've got to ask questions about the nature of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. Is it spiritual or is it, or is it physical? What elements of, of those realities is it now and today? And will it be one day in the future? The relationship between God's old covenant people and God's new covenant people. What do we do with Israel? What do we do with the church? How do they relate as people who uh, have related to God somewhat differently throughout the course of the scriptures? How do we understand that? Uh, The present influence of Satan. Is Satan currently bound or is Satan free? Is he like still operating like Job? where all of the angelic realm comes and presents themselves before God in Job chapter 1 and say, where have you been, Satan? I've been going to and fro on the earth and up and down within it. I've been roaming all over the place. Has that changed? Has something changed about Satan when you move to the New Testament? Finally, is there a necessity of a physical kingdom where Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning from Jerusalem? Or is all of that subsumed in kind of a spiritual interpretation of Jesus Christ and what he has done? So those are major questions. And those are questions that take major theological work, major chapter and verse and thinking and pondering and pressing on the expectations and understanding and interpretations that you have throughout the course of all of the scripture. So this text is is typically interpreted. It's, It's somewhat of a popular passage because uh, you've heard these, you've probably heard these terms if you talk about eschatology or the book of Revelation, you'll hear terms that relate to the millennium, pre-millennialism, amillennialism, and post-millennialism, okay? So I'll cover those briefly before we get in, and then I'll, I'll show you my cards and tell you where I land. Uh, pre-millennialism, uh, the pre-millennial conviction, the pre, ah, and post all have to do with when Christ returns, does Christ return pre the millennium, which would mean when? Before, right, all right, you're with me, this is good. Uh, You are theological scholars, I can tell. Uh, Does Christ return before the millennium? That takes into account, a lot of the early church fathers were pre-millennial, the Justin Martyrs, the Tertullians, the the individuals who are closest to the apostles typically were pre-millennial. They believe that Jesus comes back before the millennium. He fights the battle of Armageddon that we looked at last week. That's in chapter 19 and in chapter 20 that follows. He sets up the millennium, okay? Uh, Number two, is another framework called ah millennialism, which isn't really a great term. Ah is the Greek prefix that means no. So apathy means what? No emotion, right? No ap- apathy, right? Ah theism means no, no God, right? Ah tacos means no tacos, right? Ah, t- so, so that's the idea. It's probably not a really fair designation because ah millennialists typically don't see this period as not existing. They see it as existing currently. That it's a spiritualized reality that was accomplished through Jesus Christ on the cross and through his death, burial, and resurrection that inaugurates the kingdom period. So they would look at this thousand years not as a literal thousand years, but a symbolic period of time that represents Christ ruling and reigning in heaven and in the church on earth at this time. Okay? Post-millennialism means Jesus Christ returns when? After the millennium. Typically, post-millennials look at this thousand-year period, and they also look at it as a symbolic period of time. 
And they believe that the advance of the gospel message through the proclamation of Jesus Christ through all nations on the earth will ultimately and inevitably create a, uh, a blessed kind of earth where the uh, gospel has taken root and reformed the systems and structures of the world and Christ will return after that symbolic golden age in the millennium. Uh, amillennialism, premillennial, like I said, became uh, somewhat popular with the early church fathers. Amillennialism showed up really as the, the main doctrine of the historic Catholic, i.e. universal church, around 400 AD with a guy named Augustine. His interpretation around 400 kind of held the day as they looked at what was happening in their culture and at that time. Postmillennialism was typically held by the Puritans. As the Puritans looked at the promise of the gospel going forth, they believed the gospel would then bring in a future kingdom. Postmillennialism kind of fell out of favor as you go through world wars and the genocide of Hitler and all of that kind of stuff. And typically today you'll have, most people will fall into one of two camps, either premillennial or amillennial. This is the longest introduction that I've given in a long time. We haven't even gotten to the Bible yet, but hang with me, okay? Revelation chapter 20. Here's how the text lays out, okay? I'm going to give you an outline. It's 10 verses. The text is not necessarily a very hard text. It's a pretty straightforward text. Here's the outline that'll help you think your way through it. In the beginning, you have Satan restrained. Number two, you have saints who rule. Number three, you have Satan released. And number four, you have Satan's ruin. Now, in the scope of where we've been in the book of Revelation, last week, Jesus Christ came back and dominated the Antichrist and the false prophet, the two human leaders of Babylon, the final world empire. Now, when it comes to kingdom in the Bible, I want to take, we read from Isaiah chapter 9. That's a familiar verse, right? Tim, thanks for doing that. We didn't even talk about that. Nailed it. You read great. Uh, I want you to look at something just to give you an idea of how your Old Testament looks forward to a period that I believe is fulfilled in Revelation chapter 20. Turn to Isaiah chapter 11 with me for just a minute before we get into Revelation chapter 20. Isaiah chapter 11, right in the middle. Isaiah chapter 11, another, uh, Isaiah chapter 9 talks about the... Um, is, an, is typically interpreted through the Christmas season, as Tim just shared with us. Isaiah chapter 11 looks at the, the reign and the rule of an individual called the branch. This is a, a popular verse. It's one that you see in the early part of Matthew that, that Jesus Christ fulfills. Look at Isaiah 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Who, what, what individual did Jesse have? David, right? Who was David? He's a king, right? So there's coming forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his root shall bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. You can think about Jesus and his, uh, his baptism when the spirit of God rests upon him and God says from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. It inaugurates his ministry. Verse 3, his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Now what you've taken is the incarnation of Christ, the judgment of Christ, and now what follows 
Now, we didn't see the last two verses, did we? Until Revelation chapter 19. Remember that last week? Where Jesus Christ comes back, it's not a good day. He destroys the whole kingdom of Babylon. Now, look at verse six. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. There's an incarnation. There's a battle. There's a kingdom. Okay, with me? Turn to your right to Zechariah. If you want to find Matthew and just turn back to your left, that might be easier for you to go hit Malachi and then you'll hit Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 9. Another Old Testament verse that Jesus fulfills. Zechariah chapter 9, starting in verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous, and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. When was that? Remember when that verse is quoted in your New Testament? It's in when Jesus rides into Jerusalem, fulfilling Zechariah 9, verse 9. Everybody is shouting, Hosanna, God save now. And they're throwing down palm branches, symbols of the victory that this king is about to bring. Why would they do that? Because of Zechariah 9 verse 10. Look at 9 verse 10. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. What did the New Testament Jews expect with Jesus? They expected Zechariah 9, verse 10. So that even the apostles, turn to Acts chapter 1, even the apostles ask this question. Into your New Testament, Acts verse 1. Both Isaiah and Zechariah look forward to a future restored kingdom of Israel themselves. Now look at Acts 1. Verse 6, when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus, you did your marching into Jerusalem, but then you were betrayed, you were mocked, you were scourged, you were beaten, you were condemned to death, you hung on a cross, they put you in a grave for three days, now you've risen from the dead, is now the time when you're going to fulfill the Old Testament Jewish hopes? And Jesus disappoints them. He says to them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. He doesn't say there isn't a kingdom. He said there are times and seasons according to the Father's authority where we will fulfill these things. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my what? My witnesses. Where? In Jerusalem, Judea, and in all Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, he went. Behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come again in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Okay? Now turn to Revelation chapter 20. Verse 
as I said, the longest introduction ever. So let's see what happens here in Revelation chapter 20. And this, you know, if, if you have come in today and you go, Steve, I'm already not tracking with you and I've been here 10 minutes. Um, there's something really, really important for you in this text. These 10 verses are going to apply to your Christian life tomorrow morning because there's something so important for the way that you live your life so important for the way that you make decisions, so important for the way that you see God and who he is and how you understand what is happening in the Monday through Friday mundane reality of your life. And it has to do with what is true. Ever asked that before? What is true? What is truth? How do I understand things that are actually true about myself, that are actually true about my circumstances, that are actually true about God and who he is and what he is like? That all of us in this room at some point and at some place in our life have doubted things about God, have misunderstood things about God. And that reality for you is so, so important. And I think one that this text speaks to. All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, for the next few minutes as we look into your word, we pray uh, that through your spirit and through your word, that you would give light to our eyes, that understanding to our hearts, and help us to see what you would have for us to take away from a text like this. Father, we come humbly to a text like this. This seems strange, seems like one that it's easy to misinterpret, easy to misunderstand. I pray that you would give grace as we look at it and that we would gain a greater understanding of who you are and a greater understanding and greater confidence that all of the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. All right, Revelation 20, verse 1. Y'all there? Good, okay. Don't matter, I'm there. Here we go. Revelation 20, verse 1. Here's Satan restrained. Now, we've dealt in the, in, the, in the movement of the book of Revelation, we've handled the two significant human leaders that have been in charge of Babylon, the last one world power, right? We saw the Antichrist, and we saw the false prophet, and we saw behind them uh, the dragon. And the dragon, it said, gave his power to the beast. He was the great energy source of this last final antichrist and his hype man, the false prophet. He was behind it all. Well, at this point, the antichrist and the false prophet have both been thrown into the lake of fire. We saw that last week. They're the first inhabitants of the eternal torment that awaits those who refuse to receive Jesus Christ. And now, in the movement of the book of Revelation, we have to deal with the dragon because he's still out there. He still has not finally and ultimately been, been dealt with. And what I want to show you just through the course of the book of Revelation is the final descent of Satan. We're moving to the final descent of Satan. That in Revelation chapter 12, he's in heaven. You remember that? And he's fighting against Michael and his angels. And he's cast out from heaven. And the testimony of Revelation chapter 12 is, Woe to you, those who dwell on the earth, for Satan has come down with great fury and great wrath. And it says he goes out to make war against the people of God. Now he's going to move from heaven to earth 
to this passage here, well, he's going to inhabit the abyss. Look at what it says. I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. Now, we've seen the abyss before. The abyss showed up first in Revelation chapter 9. It was the abode of imprisoned demons, where these demons were open and the shaft of the abyss was open. These 200 million demons were let loose on the earth. Remember that? They had faces like women and, and bodies like lions and tails like scorpions and long hair and all of that. And they were let loose upon humanity to inflict torment. Though they weren't able to kill them, they were only able to torment them for a time. And in that passage there, the, the shaft the, up to the abyss, the bottomless pit is opened. Well, the abyss is here again opened. Only this time it's not open, it's going to be closed. And we're going to put a certain individual in there. He's holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. Look at verse 2. And he seized the dragon. You're going to have a, a litany of titles uh, both here and when you come to the martyrs later on in this passage that are going to expressly define for you all of the elements of Satan and who he is. He's been called the dragon all the way back in Revelation chapter 12 already. We've seen that. That speaks to his cruelty and his, um, his diabolical nature. His anger, his power, and his fury all were captured in that vision of the woman and the dragon as he sat and was ready to devour the child that she brought forth. So first he's called a dragon. Number two, he's called the ancient serpent. Where, where in your Bible do serpents show up? Back in Genesis, right? So you have the historic opponent of God's people the angry, cruel, vindictive, malicious dragon who is after God's people. And then you have the serpent, the ancient serpent of Genesis chapter 3, who came and was more crafty than all the other beasts and entered into a conversation and became the downfall of Adam and Eve. So this speaks to his deceptive nature. He's the father of lies, is what Jesus calls him in John chapter 8. Not only that... He's called the devil. Now, devil is the Greek word that's translated diabolos. It's, uh, it typically has to do um, as a slanderer, as a malicious gossip. You could think of him, the devil, as the one who is the uh, accuser. Remember, when the dragon was cast from heaven, there was no longer any accusation of God's people allowed. That heaven was silenced when Satan was there. We will not have him in the presence of God and in the presence of the saints anymore, that he's the accuser and he's thrown down. Finally, he's Satan here and he's called, Satan is the Hebrew word for adversary. Satan chronologically is first mentioned in the book of Job, which Job lives about the same time as Abraham. And if you open Job to the first couple chapters, Satan's role in that is accusing Job. He consistently says, Job serves you for nothing, God. All you do is bless him. But if I take your blessings away, he will fail and he will fall. So all of these realities, the cruelty, the gossip, the accusing, the slandering, the adversary of God's people is taken by this angel. And look at remainder of verse 2. He's bound for a thousand years. There's your first mention of six different times a thousand years will be mentioned in this passage. Look at verse 3. He's thrown into the pit, the abyss. The abyss is then shut, and the abyss is finally sealed over him. Now, things 
this was helpful for me, things that have been sealed in the book of Revelation. The 144,000 were sealed. And we've seen the 144,000 were victorious all the way through the book. Remember that? All the way back in Revelation 7 and Revelation 14. They're sealed in 14. They stand victorious with the Lamb on Mount Zion in Revelation chapter 14. They're sealed and completely safe from the threat of the devil, from the oppression of their day, and from the wrath of God. No one can touch them. You remember Revelation chapter 10? There were these uh, seven thunders sounded. And John was told, when the seven thunders sound, seal up what they say so that nobody can hear, nobody is allowed to peer into the testimony of the seven thunders during that day. And here, Satan is put in the abyss. It's not only shut, it's also sealed. He's not only in there, he's also chained. So I think in the normative reading of this text, you look at Satan having not just a limited effect upon the planet at this time, but an eliminated effect on the planet at this time. Now we've broken Babylon, we've taken the Antichrist and the false prophet, and we've thrown them into the lake of fire, so we've eliminated this world power, this economic engine, and this spiritual idolatry machine that was set up to persecute and torment God's people. We've broken that in half, now we've broken in half the leaders, and now we've taken the great power behind it, the great energy source, and we've sealed it, and we've effectively cut off his influence on earth. And his purpose here was that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended, and after that he must be released for a little while. It speaks to Satan's essential operating uh, agenda throughout the book of Revelation. That in Revelation chapter 12, the dragon is called the deceiver of the whole world. In Revelation chapter 13, the false prophet does signs to deceive those who dwell on the earth. The merchants of Revelation chapter 18 are said to have deceived all of the world with their sorceries. And coming into this thousand years, what you have now is the removal of the influence of deception. So the key question when you read a passage like this is, has this happened already? Has the influence of Satan been removed from the world? What do you think? Yeah, see, everybody believes no. Okay. That's easy then. I don't need, I've got like 30 minutes on that whole, time, that whole point. Uh, all millennials typically look at this passage and say, um, Luke chapter 11, Jesus talks about uh, the Pharisees accusing him of driving out demons by the power of Beelzebub or Satan himself. And Jesus says that a kingdom divided itself cannot stand. But if I drive out demons by the power of God, then the kingdom of God is among you. And then Jesus tells this parable of the strong man, that you can't go into a strong man's house and plunder his possessions unless you are stronger than him, right? That's a pretty easy parable to understand. You got to be stronger than the strong man who guards his possession. When one stronger than him comes along, he's able to overpower him and plunder his possessions. And the picture is Jesus going into the gates of hell, taking the objects of, being, of those who are bound by Satan and freeing them and bring, taking them from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear son. And they say that Jesus's ministry was inaugurated and inaugurated that reality today. That's not bad. I think that's pretty good. I like that reality because when we come to the knowledge of faith and God and who he is, we are transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God's dear son. Amen? That's pretty good. However, 
I also see activity of Satan that seems to be consistent all the way through the New Testament. Remember Acts chapter 5? Acts chapter 5 is there's, uh, the gospel has taken root in this new community. Everybody is, massive waves of people are coming to faith. And then in Acts chapter 5, there are individuals who are selling their property and playing it at the feet of the apostles. And everybody's saying, look at how generous they are. They're giving to the cause of the Lord and they trust him. And there's two groups of two people who come along named Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias and Sapphira sell a piece of land, but they don't give the full um, Profit, thank you. Profit in front of the disciples. They give up part of it. They keep back part of it from themselves and they look just as generous as the people who were really generous. They're false, generous people. Doesn't go good with the the apostles. Peter says to Ananias, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Which tells you that Satan goes to church and he's still in the church which is indicative of how the majority of your New Testament works. When Paul now moves through the New Testament, he recognizes in 1 Thessalonians, he's told, here's this, I'll just read you some of these. He says in 1 Thessalonians 2, since we were torn away from you brothers for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. Satan opposes the ministry of Paul. One of the apostles. James, when he's talking about how we battle with sinful desires in our heart in James chapter 4, says, submit yourself therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Where is Satan at work? In the things that you desire and the things that you want. In the things that cause conflict, according to James chapter 4. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, also in Ephesians chapter 2, of the devil, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So personally where I land, as I see this is a future time when Satan is eliminated from his ability to deceive completely and whatsoever. For one big reality, which is what comes next, the ruling of the saints. Look at verse 4. Then I saw thrones. Now, thrones is not, that's a common term in the book of Revelation. You've had the throne of Satan. You've had the throne of God, right? Both of those were uh, realities. But when throne is not singular but plural, it only shows up in a couple of places. Here and back in the letters to the churches. I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Now, if you remember back in uh, the early part of this book, we looked at several churches that had a promise to rule and reign. If you remember the song of the Lamb in Revelation chapter 5, says, they will be a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. The letter to the church at Thyatira Hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works to the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as myself have received authority from my father. The promise of the church at Laodicea. To the one who conquers, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. So who are these people who reign on thrones? And there's about four different groups of people I think this applies to. 
And you've got to move through your Bible to pull out these promises of ruling and reigning with Jesus Christ. Not only the letters to the churches here in the book of Revelation, but Paul refers to this in the letter to the Corinthians. Paul comes and talks to the Corinthian church and he says this in 1 Corinthians 6, when one of you has a grievance against one another, does he dare to go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? Paul foresees, John foresees a time when those New Testament saints will share in the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. They will share in his enthronement, in his royalty, as it were. That's the first group. I believe the church will reign. Number two, I believe believing Israel will reign. Remember when Jesus is talking to the disciples at the end of his ministry in Matthew chapter 19, he says, truly, truly, I say to you in the new world, literally the regeneration, when the son of man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus sees a time when these apostles will receive royal treatment. They will receive the right to rule along with Jesus Christ. Number three, I think you have Old Testament saints during this time. In the book of Daniel, when the uh, Antichrist in Daniel chapter 7 is uh, judged, it says in Daniel 7.27 that the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, and his kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Church, Old Testament saints, New Testament saints, um, and number four, this group right here. Look at the next group. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. Why are we so explicit with this group of people again? We've been explicit with Satan and who he is already. The dragon, the serpent, the beast, the devil, thank you. And now we have here an explicit reminder as to what these martyrs went through. And this text gives us a, a grand reversal of the reality of what these martyrs have been through. The martyrs have been through the worst time to be a Christian, a believer in Jesus Christ, and the entire planet. They've been persecuted. They've lost friends and family. They've lost here their very lives for holding to the truth of Jesus Christ and who he is. And it's as if John reminds us again that now these individuals will be vindicated not just with resurrection, but royalty. Do you believe that? That if you believe in Jesus Christ, you have not just crossed from death to life. You have not just crossed from orphan to adopted. You have not just gone from death to resurrection. You have gone from the most persecuted and hated. Paul calls this in his ministry, we are called the scum of the earth. He, he has this recognition about himself that the world does not value our message. Nobody cares about what we believe. They hate who we are. We aren't valued or exalted or any of those things. And Revelation chapter 20 shows you this grand reversal to where now the persecuted of the earth now become the victorious reigning saints with Jesus Christ. 
They hadn't received the mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. They're vindicated through their faith throughout all the ages. You have all the ages of the Old Testament, New Testament, and tribulation saints all together here ruling and reigning with Jesus Christ, that their faith became sight. And Jesus had granted to him these precious and very great promises where they get to rule and reign with him. Verse five, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. Now, we're gonna see in a second, this is next week, but the rest of the dead will be the unrighteous dead who will be judged in just a moment in the next passage. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. And we have the fifth benediction in this entire book that now recognizes the blessedness of ruling and reigning with Christ. Look at verse six. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. Steve, what's the second death? Keep your finger in Revelation 20 verse 10 and just come down for a second here into um, verse, where is it? There it is, verse 14. See 2014? Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. That this resurrected royal group of people who now rule and reign with Jesus Christ will never experience the eternal torment and the eternal separation from God. They have been saved and secure just as all of God's people have been throughout the ages and throughout the Bible. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. You have a cross-reference there in that verse that goes back to chapter 1? No? Okay, somebody, Micah, you got it? Yeah, you got it. That's a good Bible you got there. Revelation 1, verse 6 says this, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The book begins like this of what Jesus has done to make me a kingdom and a priest who I will, that I will rule and reign with him one day. Do you believe that? Maybe you've never even heard this before. You go, I don't know, I'm gonna die, maybe get a harp, a white robe, and I guess I'm in heaven for a long time. But these promises that, that bind your Old Testament together, if you ever read the book of Matthew, watch how many times Matthew refers to the Old Testament saying this uh, happened to fulfill this Old Testament verse. When Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says all of the promises of God find their yes in who? In Christ, in Jesus. That Jesus will be faithful to his word. He promised it and it will come to pass. Now here's Satan released. You've got the ruling and reigning of his people. Look at verse seven, here's Satan released. When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to do what? He'll deceive. Has Satan changed? No. One of the, I think, important realities to this is that time doesn't change Satan. Even when he's bound and restricted from doing what has been so consistent about his uh, tactic in the book of the Bible, and all throughout the Bible, he has a thousand years where he's completely eliminated. And he comes out and he goes right back to what his plan has been before. And during this thousand years where we rule and reign with Christ, we have, we have taken away any element of spiritual deception. Can you imagine that? 
Imagine just for a minute that there is no deception anywhere. No half-truths, no manipulation, no concealing what is really going on. But there is always absolute clarity from the one who has eyes like the flame of fire. And that kingdom rules for a thousand years. It's going to be Camelot. You know what Camelot is? It's King Arthur and the round table and the reign of peace. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle wrote about the highest moment of glory and power being uh, headed up by those who are actually pure of heart, who have been given, not just imputed, but imparted righteousness and rule according to the will of Jesus Christ himself. Can you imagine that? Isn't that amazing to think about? That there's no broken human system that is not reversed and restored by Jesus Christ. There is no uh, subtle racism. There is no bigotry. There is no chauvinism. There is nothing except pure and righteous judgment pervading the entire earth. There's no oppression. There's no injustice. None of those things. But when Satan is released again, he goes forth to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. Now, has anybody ever heard of the term Gog and Magog? Okay, yeah, like four of you have. Gog and Magog is only mentioned one place in your Bible. It's in Ezekiel 38 and 39. I'm not going to turn back there. I don't have time to do it. You can read it on your own. You probably didn't read Ezekiel 38 and 39 this week. It's It's a passage that talks about the historic opponents of God's people. Probably a picture of both the battle of Armageddon and this last battle that we have right here with images of both. In Ezekiel 38 and 39, you have the gathering of the birds of heaven that we looked at in the battle of Armageddon. You have that uh, Zechariah 14 plague that Jesus inflicts upon all those armies that gather together. This is a similar battle with similar ideas because it all flows from the deception of Satan. And here, once again, the nations are gathered from the four corners of the earth of Gog and Magog to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, an innumerable amount. And what do you think is going to happen? Don't read ahead. Just take a wild guess how long this battle is going to last. I mean, a comma. That's how long it lasts. Enough time for you to go, <gasps> Do you miss it? That's the whole battle. Look at verse 9. They marched up. This is Satan's ruin. They marched up over the broad broad plain of the earth. They surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, comma, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. How fast can Jesus finish a battle? He can finish a battle faster than you can read a sentence. That's what he did last week, right? The sword came from his mouth and obliterated the armies. Here, fire falls from heaven and obliterated the armies. Look at verse 10. The devil who had deceived them Three times we're told the devil's a deceiver. He was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur. Now, when the devil is thrown into the lake of fire or sulfur, this, is, this was helpful for me in thinking about the premillennial position. Because when the devil is thrown into that place, there's two people who are already there and we have a timestamp of who they are from a thousand years prior in Revelation chapter 19. You with me? The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. 
the Antichrist and the false prophet, the first inhabitants of the eternal torment of the wrath of God in the lake of fire, are still there. They have still been defeated and still experiencing the wrath of God. And now Satan joins them and they will be tormented day and night forever and forever. If you take a chapter 19 precedes chapter 20 interpretation, then what you see is a consistency to the judgment of Jesus Christ in 17 and 18. The judgment and the wrath of God falls upon the center of the kingdom, uh, Babylon. In Revelation chapter 19, you have the judgment of Jesus Christ falling upon the Antichrist and the false prophet. In Revelation chapter 20, you have the restraint of Satan, his restriction from deceiving the nations and going out. You see the rule and reign of Jesus Christ in systems that are perfect for humanity. You have him released, and then you have him judged. And now at this point, we have eliminated all of the opposition to God, his plan, and his Christ. Amen. Hallelujah. They're done. And what you have next is a judgment of all people, which we'll look at next week. So, what's the purpose of the millennium? I think the purpose of the millennium is to give you two big realities. One, a reality about Satan. Satan never changes. Satan's goal is always your destruction, your ruin, your deception, your discouragement, your despair, and ultimately your disbelief in God and who he is. He is dead set against deceiving you. That your adversary, the devil, prowls around seeking whom he may devour. His agenda and his attention on you is not for a end of days keg party where he's got a tail and a pitchfork. His agenda for you is destruction. You have an opponent and an adversary and you need to be aware of his schemes as Paul calls them. Number two, something that this shows us, are you surprised at humanity? That even during the rule and reign of Jesus Christ, where every single system on the planet, every political system, every organization upon the planet at this time is completely and justly and righteously ruled by Christ and his people, that mankind will turn after a thousand years of peace and prosperity and will fall right back into being deceived by what Satan does. The irrationality of sin that we carry in our hearts should scare you. You should quickly acknowledge that the heart is deceptively wicked and sick. Who can understand it, like Jeremiah says? You carry, I carry in myself this desire to run life on my own, disconnected from God. And this, this is the ambition and the tactic of Satan from Genesis 3 all the way through to Revelation chapter 20. Satan's tactics are very simple, though they vary in the context and the season of people that he tries to deceive. The root of his tactic shows up in Genesis chapter 3, where he does two things. He gets you, and he gets me, and he gets Eve to think differently about God and who he is. Now, let me take that idea 
and say that what I long for is a church is that we would grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. That from year after year and season after season of our lives, we would grow in truth. That we would grow in our understanding of who God is and what he is like and therefore begin to reorient our hearts according to worshiping the one true God, the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And to do that, we need accuracy about God and who he is. We need to know who God is and the way God speaks into our life and into our day and gives us truth to reorient our compass by. Because if we live in a world where Satan is active, our compass is always spinning. You with me? We never get a sense of understanding really where we are until we come to the word of God. Until we come to the truth of God. The second thing Satan does in Genesis chapter 3 is he gives something to Eve that she wants. Your Christian life runs on two big rails, truth and love. So that your Christian life runs on who you believe God to be, how you understand him. But what you bring to that is this heart that is deceptively sick and wicked and broken and loves all sorts of the wrong kind of things, amen? That I am twisted in my heart because I love things that are not good for me. I love things to bring me pleasure and joy at the expense of the truth of God and who he is. And I am just like Romans chapter 1 that says they exchange the truth of God for a lie. And that when I reorient myself not to truth but to lies, now all of my pleasures and desires make a whole lot of sense, don't they? When I ignore what God has said, now I can live with my own ambition, my own agenda in life, the own desires of my heart, and Satan is pleased to orient me to everything that will cause my ultimate destruction. Have you ever been lied to? You ever had somebody seem to be one way and then turn out to be somebody totally different? You ever invest in a relationship and spend time and, and, and conversation and relational equity and vulnerability and you open yourself up to an individual and then they let you down and they lie. They aren't who they said they were. And of all of the experiences that we have walking through life on this planet, those can be some of the most devastating relationships, can't they? They can be some of the most disorienting experiences we have when all of a sudden truth doesn't turn out to be truth. Now truth is a lie and the things I thought were true are no longer true. The things I thought I could count on, I can no longer count on. And we have people come into this church reeling from those experiences, reeling emotionally, confused, uncertain, wondering where they can put their feet down onto something that is sure and certain. And these are the lives that we live, guys. We, you, I, we could go around the room and you could tell me those experiences. 
of I thought it was this and it turned out to be this. I invested my emotions, my heart, my energy into this and it totally lied to me. It totally failed me. And now I feel like I can't, I don't have my sea legs anymore. I don't have anywhere to put my feet. And the beauty about this passage and really passages in in the New Testament are the promises that we have about God and who he is. I was reading Titus the other day. Titus uh, chapter one, Paul begins this letter to this young pastor and he says this, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life which God, and this just kind of jumped out to me. You ever be reading a part of the Bible and like certain words go bold for you? And Paul's about to tell you what, what Titus needs to do with this church in Crete, and he mentions just in passing, he says this, in hope of eternal life which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Isn't it good news? John, he says this in his apostle, in his uh, apostle, <laughs> his uh, epistle, 1 John chapter 5. He says, um, we know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. See, he says, then we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Look, you may have been deceived at some point, but one of the reasons that we preach expositionally. One of the reasons that we work through books of the Bible is that we need God to define himself for us. We need God to speak into our lives. We can't look at our circumstances, look at our relationships in a world that is tainted by sin and deception and manipulation and uncertainty and life not going the way we want it to. We need a pure word from God. And the thing that you get when you come to the scriptures and you come to specifically Jesus Christ is you get an individual who says, I'm the way I'm the truth, and I'm the life. And that when Jesus speaks, you can trust him. You can trust him to tell you the truth about who you are. You can trust Jesus when he says that you are a sinner. You don't want to hear it. You're not excited about it. You can trust Jesus when he says nothing you can do can heal this relationship between you and God. That Jesus gives us an accurate understanding of who God is and his holiness and his perfection. He gives us a pure understanding of who we are, of how broken and twisted and uncertain and and deceptive our hearts are. But then Jesus says, I am the truth, the way, and the life. And he shows us that he heals our relationship with God, our Heavenly Father, and he's absolutely true to do that. And he does that so that you would know you can put your faith in somebody who is always faithful. He's always faithful to you. He always tells you the truth. He's a great friend. He doesn't lie. He doesn't deceive. He doesn't uh, manipulate you. He is always in the relationship with you for your good. He always has an agenda in your life where he will tell you the truth and be honest with you. And the greatest hope we have as a church is not that we understand everything, but we have somebody who understands everything and tells us and speaks to us 
and gives us the truth of God that we can build our lives upon. So the great hope of this passage is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ, whose words are like pure words. Isn't that good news? And that God speaks to us through Jesus Christ, helping us to stop the spinning of the compass, to orient our life rightly, and to know that one day we will be priests of God and rule on his throne with him forever. Father, this is a a glorious passage where we look at it and we find great hope. Father, for those who are in this room and have been deceived at one point, have been discouraged about how relationships have gone and, uh, Father, how their relationships may be even reeling right now, how there's an emotional uncertainty that exists in their heart and in their mind, I pray that they would be encouraged by the fact that you are a God who speaks truth, that you are a God who never lies, that you are a God that speaks in the person and work of Jesus Christ. You're totally faithful. You're totally reliable. You're totally consistent. That with you is no turning, no shadow or shifting of changing. That you are constant. And that though our hearts are deceived and discouraged and run all over the place, Father, we can always come back to you. And we can always find hope in Jesus Christ who is the way, the truth, and the life. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this text. Shape us, guide us, encourage us with your truth. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.